My guess is that many of you have had certain moments, uh, certain occasions that changed your lives. Certainly, hearing the gospel does that. If you are a follower of Jesus, at, at some point in time in your life, God turned the light bulb on so that you would understand and agree with God that, yes, you are a sinner in need of a Savior, and more so, yes, gloriously, Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior you need, that his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead is more than enough to forgive you of your sins and to reunite you to God himself. And then, you know, as we keep walking with God, he reveals more of himself, more of his grace, more of his truth that make a life-changing impact. God is so good to us. He is so good. And I don't know when it happened, and I don't really know where I was at, but my life was changed. When God revealed to me that much of my life was guided, determined, directed by my own love for myself rather than my love for God or others. For many years of my Christian life, I was totally blind to the reality that I was principally motivated by the selfishness of self-love. I thought God was my greatest love. I lived thinking that my, my motives were pure. And then, of course, when I got married, I thought I loved my wife first. And then God opened my eyes. I did not love God first. I did not love my wife first. I first loved me. And since then, God has revealed in me these little pockets of how I'm still struggling in my own life with self-love. And then, of course, I believe it's a pervasive and all-consuming problem in our world today. It's in everything we do, and I believe it needs to be systematically addressed and dismantled. And this is partly why I react so strongly, those of you who know me, when I, when I hear Christians, of all people, talking about self-love. You need to love yourself more. And to love others, you need to first love yourself. You know, it's one thing to hear that message out there in the world, but it's a sad reality that that has infiltrated the church. I know too many believers in Christ who see loving themselves as an important key of unlocking God's best for them. And of course, you won't find that anywhere in the Bible, which should be a big clue to all of you who call yourself a Bible person. We do not need to learn how to love ourselves first. We already love ourselves too much. That's part of the problem. A church that's very dear to Corby and I, I will leave unnamed, kind of back home. They plastered on their sign leading into town, such and such church, learning to love God, neighbor, and ourselves. We don't need to learn how to love ourselves. We already do that. Instead, what God tells us to do is crucify yourself. Die to yourself. Look away from yourself. That's what the Bible tells you to do. 
to refocus your attention, your, your energy onto others, to love them. And then if that's not enough, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the first thing the Apostle Paul says of the ungodly generation that's coming is that they will be lovers of self. Very first thing, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. So I really mean this, my good brothers and sisters. Tune out any teaching, any encouragement, any counsel to love yourself more. It will take you away from the path that Christ wants you to walk, and it will surely hurt and damage your marriage. Understanding love is very important. God has a lot to say about it. Depending on what Bible, Bible translation you check or you're reading, the word love appears in the Bible from 350 to 550 times. It's everywhere. And so no wonder the evil one works so hard at distorting its meaning. There is one, the Bible calls him Satan or Lucifer, a few other names too. There is one who works against the plans of God, an agent of darkness, he wants to steal God's glory. He wants to undo God's creative work. And anything God values and prizes, Satan wants to damage. And this, I believe, is one of the main reasons why we get the word love so, so wrong. In 1 John 4, 8, it says, God is love. If that's true, if God is love then what better way to confuse and mislead people, to mess with and toy with, lie about God, which then, distorting our view of God, lying about love. If the darkness, friends, can blind us to what love is, it can blind us to who God is. And I think there is plenty of anecdotal evidence that our culture does not understand love. And we are tempted, friends, to get it wrong when, of course, we are not uh, cautious about worldliness in our own lives. And so we're going to talk about love all morning. That's going to be our focus. We're going to talk about love, true love. And I'm, I'm going to do my best, of course, to apply this to a wide range of our lives. So regardless of who you are and your marital status, this will be very important for you. But, of course, I want to narrow in on marriage as well. And so to do that, we're going to study 1 John 4, 7 through 12. I want you to grab a Bible, if you would, with me and turn to 1 John chapter 4. We have Bibles in the seats near you if you're new or visiting, don't have a Bible with you, and love to have you follow along. 1 John 4, we're going to read verses 7 through 12. The Apostle John writing, and we, we begin this way in verse 7. He writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son 
into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So I want to briefly here outline this passage, and then we'll then I want to focus on the key verse. So this paragraph starts with the command to love others. That's, that's what John wants these people to do. He wants them to love others. Let us love one another. That's that's a command. He, re, he kind of restates the command as an ought in verse 11. We ought to love one another. That's his goal. That's what he wants to see. And then in verse 8, he, he simply establishes a correlation. People who know God love because God is love. And so, hey, you know, if you are of God, then you should be a person who does love other people because God is love. And, and I actually think this is a very helpful way to assess how we're doing in our relationship with God. How am I loving others? Am I doing that all right? Well, we ought to be. I mean, I know it's a challenge. It's a lifelong journey. But God is love. And if we're followers of God, then we too will be like him who loves. So it's just establishing that correlation. Now, verse, verse 9 tells us where love comes from. Love was made manifest, or another way of saying that would, be, would mean like God revealed love. God showed us love. Um, he brought to us love in the coming of Jesus. So that's where love came from, from God. And then verse 10 is our key verse because in verse 10, we get the definition of love. We get the definition of love in verse 10. Verse, verse 9 says, this is how God showed us love. Verse 10 is, this is love. Let, look at verse 10 again. Since that's our key verse, we'll read that again. In this is love. This is love right here. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You know, the way this verse boils love down, I think it, it does the best job in all of the scriptures at giving us some kind of definition of love. You know, love, of course, is far too rich. It's far too deep to have a simple definition. Love is not like a coffee bean or a violin or a basketball that we can all point to and say, well, that's, that's, that's what it is. That's obviously right there. It's, it's more qualitative than that. It's more ethereal than that. It's more mysterious but God does give us these, these pictures, these aspects, aspects of what love is like so that we can, we can kind of get close to what it's like and know what it's not. And so that's what we're going to spend all of this morning talking about is looking at these various characteristics, these various truths about what love is like so that we can apply it to our meaningful relationships and, of course, to marriage. And so that's what, that's what we're going to start doing right now. And so first of all, the, 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 the first thing I want to highlight to you is that love, friends, is willing. Love is willing. The Father did send Jesus. We see that explicitly in 1 John 4.10. But Jesus is also willing. 
In John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. There's a want to in love. There's a will in love. You you can't force it. You can't demand it. There is a right commitment to love. There is a right determination in love, even when it's hard. But it can't be all duty, right? Love can't be all duty. There has to be a desire. There has to be a will. Jesus willingly gave his life for us. Now, I'm going to bring this first aspect in when I talk about another one here. And so I'm going to move on to that second aspect, and I'm going to kind of bring them together. And so the second thing that we get, see straight from 1 John 4 is that love is sacrificial. Now, I get that from the word propitiation. You see that there in verse 10. Propitiation is a fancy word which means an atonement for sin. Or even more specifically, it means a sacrifice for sin that appeases the wrath of God. There's various ways that God's or Jesus' death on the cross worked for us. One of the things that Jesus' death on the cross did was cleansed us from all of our sins. And in the, another big fancy Bible word that we use to describe that is expiation. That Jesus' sacrifice cleanses our sins. But, but the, another thing that God's sacrifice in Jesus did for us was that it appeased the anger or wrath of God. And that's what propitiation means. The Bible, friends, is really clear that the reason our sin is such bad news for us is that it stokes the anger and wrath of God. Sin is not a mistake. It's not a slip-up. Sin is high treason. Sin is ultimate betrayal. In our sin, we are Benedict Arnold. I remember growing up hearing that phrase, you know, and hearing that as a traitor. I actually looked it up. Well, what did this Benedict Arnold even do? Well, he was a commander in George Washington's army and during the Revolutionary War. And Washington trusted him completely and gave him command of the strategic fort called West Point. But that rings familiar to some of you. But Arnold was planning to surrender the fort to the British, which would strike a fatal blow to the Americans. He was a traitor. Now, thankfully, the plot was discovered, and when that happened, Arnold ran to safety to the Brits and then eventually led the British army against his very own former soldiers. Man, that should make every one of you red, white, and blue-blooded patriots angry. Treason. And friends, we are Benedict Arnold to God. Romans 1 says, this about humanity, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Friends, our, I would say, biggest problem is the wrath of God, his anger for our sins. And so when Jesus became an atoning sacrifice on our behalf, friends, he absorbed the wrath of God. He took our place and bore the penalty for our sin. 
that was aroused by our ungodliness and unrighteousness. And so what a sacrifice. What love. And so we're learning here from 1 John 4, verse 10, that love is sacrificial. By definition, if you do not make a sacrifice or you are unwilling to make a sacrifice, then your love is lacking. And to dig into this a little bit more, you know, to to try to tease out some of its implications with marriage, let's, let's talk about it. And I want to bring up this, maybe another word that's related to sacrifice, which is cost. True love has cost. And what's the cost? Well, does love have a limit? If you remember from Luke chapter 15, or excuse me, 18, Luke 18, about the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan, we learn God saying love has no limit. And so then there's no cost too great. And so the very cost of love is our very own selves, friends. Our very own selves completely laid out for the one that we love. And so are you willing to make a cost, to pay the cost, to make that sacrifice in marriage? So I I just thought of a couple examples. These are actually, I think, rather, well, they're smaller than ourselves, but it's an an expression of ourselves. So for example, you know, love gives time to go on a walk with your wife when you were hoping to spend time watching the game or going fishing. Love costs a wife maybe exactly the way she wants her home to look or her kitchen to look so that her husband can feel at home and comfortable in the place that they're raising their family. Or love will cost a husband that new pickup truck or that new ATV when his wife is nervous about getting stretched too thin financially. A husband who loves his wife would much rather have a wife at peace about their financial status than a new toy, right? Friends, if you will not sacrifice desires and preferences, likes and interests, comforts, for your spouse, then your love is lacking. Now, before we move on, this is where I want to bring in that other aspect, that idea of willing sacrifice. Are you glad to make a sacrifice? Are you happy to pay a price for another? Like, if you're, if you're like a toddler who pouts every time you have to give a little, well, that's not hardly a picture of love, is it? Certainly not a picture of Jesus who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross and despised its shame. Now, I don't know about you, but as I even just look at these two first aspects of love, like, I feel like the bar is already really high. Like, who's happy to make a sacrifice? I know the one who loves is happy to make a sacrifice. So next, love works for the good of another. Write that down if you're taking notes. Love works for the good of another. Now, I think this strikes at the heart of our cultural confusion about love. Because culturally speaking, loving another person means you're going to do whatever you can to help them do whatever they want to do. 
to help them do whatever feels good. That's kind of our cultural definition of love. You love somebody by helping them achieve the goal of them doing whatever they want, and you're very unloving if you get in the way of them doing whatever they want. That's why I think we're very... We're quickly departing from God's ways when it comes to sexual ethics or parental strategies or whatever it might be in our world today. God says conforming oneself to Christ is our greatest good. And that is not the way our culture defines greatest good. And so again, love is defined by this example of Christ. So consider Christ. Jesus, friends, did not die to give us whatever we wanted. He died to give us the ultimate good, which is reuniting ourselves to God the Father in a relationship of grace and peace. God did not send Jesus to help you get more money. Jesus Jesus did not come to help you stay healthy, to keep you from pain and suffering, to make sure you have a blast in retirement, to give you that meaningful job. That is not why God sent Jesus for you. God sent Jesus so that you would not perish in your sins. He sent Jesus to make you alive to God and dead to your transgressions. He sent Jesus so that you could live in the power of the Holy Spirit and actually actually take on the characteristics of God himself in this world today. And God, friends, will take your money away. God will allow pain and suffering in your life. He will permit sickness if those circumstances are needed to keep Christ at the center of your life. Now, when I think about this aspect of love in my marriage, um, and I was doing that, of course, as I was trying to apply this message to my own life this past week or so as I was studying and writing, this question came to my mind. I thought, Brian, are you working for your wife's good without her even asking you to? Do you know what I mean when I say not even asking you to? You know, I'll do stuff that my wife asks me to do most of the time, you know. But the question is, am I focused? Am I tuned in to her good? Like, as who I am, my disposition, and her spiritual good, her material good, her emotional, physical, relational good. And then am I working towards that good without her, you know, dropping those little hints or giving those Oh, so helpful, wifely reminders, right? So is that my priority? Do I see that as my life's work and even joy? Sometimes not, I hate to say. But how about you? Are you ready and willing to work for the good of your spouse? Two more aspects, and then we'll kind of talk some application Another note, if you're taking notes, this would write this down. Love does not demand reciprocation. Love does not demand reciprocation. I get that from the phrase in 1 John 4. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Look at God's example. God did not send Jesus to us because he saw that we were making a really good effort and trying to love him first. God did not send Jesus because he saw us trying really hard, doing our best, 
trying to be honorable. But, you know, but we're human, we fall short, and so God, he sees our best attempt, and so he tries to, you know, he's coming in to help us, you know, where we're falling short. No, no, that is not, that is not what God did. God's love was not a response to our well-intentioned effort. He loved us out of this well of mercy and grace that was just bubbling up inside of him that he purposefully poured out onto us because that's just who God is. He's a loving God. Love, friends, does not wait and see if something happened that's worth a response. Love does not demand reciprocation. And I think this is a really big one in the sense of like, practically speaking, how this works out in our relationships. I mean, how many of us, and and really whatever relationship we might want to bring up, our marriage or sibling relationships or friendships, how many of us have done something, what we would call loving, I don't know, taking out the garbage or, you know, washing her car or making his favorite dish or planning that vacation, and then we waited, you know, for something in return. What what are they going to now do for me? And we wait, and we, when we wait a little more, and then nothing. And then what, how do we feel? What do we say? Well, that's, that's the thanks I get. That's the last time I'm doing that. He says what his love language is, and then I go and try, and then I get nothing in return. I don't get it. Doesn't even take me on a date, you know? Friends, that right there, that's self-love. That's self-love right there in living color. I'm really not doing it for my wife. I'm really doing it for me. And now my wife's not living up to her end of the bargain. She didn't give me anything in return. So now I'm done. That is self-love. You're doing it for you, not for your spouse. Friends, love does not demand reciprocation. One more, love does not demand that the person is deserving. Love does not demand that the person is deserving. This too is where the rubber meets the road. If you're not convinced yet that that genuine love, true love is a miracle, this should convince you. I mean, really, how do you love a person who is undeserving? How do you love a husband that for all the your 20 years, for all your 30 years, 40 years, just won't change his behavior. How do you love a wife who, do, who hurts your feelings so badly? Undeserving. In our vows, he said he would stay faithful to me. We promised till death do us part, and now she's doing this undeserving. Friends, it's a miracle. It is a miracle of God's grace that changes us to be people who love others when they are undeserving. Because that's exactly how God loved you and me. That's exactly how he found us. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, still rebellious, still dead in transgressions, still selfish, 
still undeserving, Christ died for us. This is the love of God, which is our example in our love for one another. Now, Paul Tripp puts all these qualities of love in one sentence. I'm going to read that for you, and it's going to be on the screen. He wrote it this way. Love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. As we think about applying this message from 1 John 4 to our lives, I want to analyze it just from two different perspectives, if you will. And here's the first aspect I want you to consider. What if we made sure we use this definition of love in our daily lives? Whether it's our marriages, other relationships. What if we took 1 John 4... What God said love is, and we, like, we adopted that as our definition. Think of, think of how much confusion we could avoid. Think of how much this would help us navigate the troubled waters of our current culture. I truly believe that if, if the definition of 1 John 4 is more resolutely embraced by followers of Jesus, we'd have much more confidence in our kingdom work, much more peace as we love our neighbor as ourselves. We would actually be, I think, more effective in our efforts of loving others. And so I guess I really do want to press upon you really how imperative it is for us as followers of Jesus to really get love right up here in our mind, in our thinking. I think so much of the trouble that we have in our ministry, in how to culturally engage our world, in our interactions with other people, is that we don't even, we're not thinking well of what love is up here. We just think of it as a feeling. We just think of it as someone giving me what I want in the moment. And friends, it's so much more rich than that. So that's the first thing I'd love for us to apply But more specifically to marriage, it should be, of course, our aim to relate to to our spouses in this way. And so I I want you to look at that definition again. You know, look at that definition, and and I'm just kind of curious, what jumps out at you? What word, what phrase is convicting you this morning? What is God saying, yeah, that one's for you, right there, that word, it's for you this morning. Maybe you're seeing that you expect reciprocation. Every time you do something, you're expecting some sort of reward. Some sort of gift in return. Or you're not not ready to serve until you first get something yourself. And then, of course, when you don't get it, your attitude changes and you're less motivated to serve your spouse. Or maybe you're recognizing that you're struggling loving because of the undeserving part. Your spouse has sinned against you. You feel neglected. So you you feel they're undeserving of your love. You've tried, and you're done trying. I'm guessing a lot of you are looking at that word sacrifice. I know know that gets me. I find it so easy to serve my wife with the things that I like to do, the things that I'm good at, 
Um, or when I have a lot of energy. You know, my, my well is, is filled up to the brim. But what's hard is helping and serving my wife when it's a sacrifice. And to be frank, I just don't like dying to myself. I just, I just don't. It's my lifelong pursuit of Christ is part of that lifelong pursuit of Christ is dying to myself, and that's just something that's hard to do. Or, or maybe you're thinking, Brian, I'm just going to be frank with you, just be honest. I'm just not willing. I just don't have the desire. My interest is gone. You know, you could make yourself do some stuff for a week or two, but you have no heart right now. You have no heart for your marriage. You have no heart for your spouse. When I look at God's definition, I see that I currently fall short, and I feel helpless also in being able to love my wife like this. If that's how you feel, well, I want to suggest to you, friends, that you're actually not in such a bad place. And here's what I mean by that, is that you're ready to turn to God for help. You can see your need. You can see your insufficiency. If you thought you were doing great, if you thought you were measuring up, you probably wouldn't feel all that, that much necessity to turn to God for help. But if you're feeling a need for help this morning, friends, then you're ready. He's waiting for you. You just have to turn to him. You have to seek him. You have to admit your failure and ask for his forgiveness. You can rejoice that God has forgiven you in Christ. And then when you implement the power of God in your life by, here's how you do that, here's how you activate the power of God in your life, you humbly turn away from yourself and you put into practice the thing God, things God's word tells you to do in faith, in faith, guess what you'll see? In time, slowly but surely, you will start implementing and exercising the love of Christ towards others. You'll be more sacrificial. You'll not expect gifts in return. You'll forgive when he's undeserving. And even, friends, I really believe this, your desires will change. But you, gotta be, you have to be willing to admit your need for Christ's help. And then you need to start turning to Christ in faith. Because I think that's one thing that we do. Sometimes we're not all that bad at admitting, you know, I need Jesus. Lord, I need you. And then we go right back into the same patterns of self-sufficiency, disobedience that we had before we had that, that conviction. So the conviction alone doesn't do any good if you're not willing to repent, to actually change. What will you do differently today? And so that's what I want to guess. I'll leave you with this question. What will you go home doing differently today than when you first came? So that you can be a person who loves others the way God defines it in 1 John 4. And we're going to be praying for you. And of course, as always, we want to help you as best as we can. That's God's word for us today.